So today, um, I'm, two weeks ago, I, I started a series here for us about essential keys on how to uh, resurrect your marriage and relationships. You know, we're, we're focusing this year on family. We are focusing on uh, all aspects of that. And marriages are a major part of family. When marriages suffer, we're all suffering. And not just New Covenant, not just, you know, your friends. Culture suffers as marriage becomes degraded, it's thrown away, it's lost. It becomes a major bane in society when marriages are not strong and healthy. And so we felt very strongly that we need to deal with marriages. We need to give you guys some practical, everyone say practical, practical teaching and equipping on how do you save your marriage when it's going down the crapper. When you are struggling, when you and your wife, you and your husband are not doing life well together, you have to repair. You have to get on a process of of changing that and fixing that. And this works in every relationship. What I am giving you Two weeks ago and today and in the next few weeks, what I'm giving you will help you fix all relationships you've got. All of them. And so I really, and this doesn't have anything to do with age. This works for teenagers. It works for old people, young people, and everything in between people. Because this is universal biblical truth that I am sharing on how to fix our marriages. And yeah, we need help sometimes. Sometimes we need intervention. Sometimes we need people to to guide us and walk through this process. I've had to do it multiple times in my marriage. I've had to have help. You get so stuck in, in what I want and what I need and what I think I deserve in this life. And so you need help. So get rid of pride and ask for help. Because what I'm giving you is going to work. I promise it. The only thing that's not going to work is you not working it. That's it. I've done this stuff personally. Multiple times. And every time it has had a blessed result. Every single time. And so two weeks ago, I started talking about the essential keys of, of how to begin that process. And, and the very first thing we have to do to resurrect, to repair our marriage or any relationship is we have to understand repentance and forgiveness. That is the beginning. It's not get all your stuff on the table and air all your grievances. We already know what all your problems are. We already know. You've made it clear to that other person plenty of times what you want in life. And you're not getting it. So we're done with that. It's time to do Bible. It's time to start with repentance and forgiveness. If you do not go through repentance and forgiveness, you are spinning your wheels in the mud. You will go nowhere. You may have a moment where pressure's off and, oh, well, we feel better after we talk to pastor. But if you don't go through repentance and forgiveness, because there are crimes 
we commit in our marriages and in our relationships that must be dealt with. That's why it's in the crapper. The crimes we commit in not loving each other well. And so we've got to understand that if we want to save our marriages and our relationships, if we want to improve them, you don't even have to wait till you're, you're on the brink of destruction to do this. This is a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle practice of repentance and forgiveness. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And repentance is what I'm going to talk about today even more. I talked about it two weeks, about the necessity of it and what, what happens when we live with unrepentant sin in our lives. We have no fire. We lose our joy. Our prayers don't get heard. When we live in unrepentant sin, we know we're doing wrong and we just don't care. But today, today I want to talk about what does it look like? What are some examples in the Bible of, of real, true repentance? What does it look like? And what really is the evidence of true repentance? Because if we are going to cooperate with the Spirit of God and really obey Him, in this area of repentance, then we've got to know what God means by repentance. And so today, the big idea that I want you to have, if you take notes, this will be the time to write it. If you don't remember anything, the big idea I want you to have today is this. True repentance is head Heart and hands. Now just say that with after me. Say, true repentance, true repentance. is head, head. Heart, heart, and hands. For true repentance to, to really happen, it must involve our head, it must involve our heart, and it must involve our hands. See, the way, the way that true repentance works its way through us and in us is in that order. Now, I know we don't like to get legalistic, but the Bible plainly lays this out for us. It has to go from our head to our heart and into our hands. Now, I'm only going to briefly touch on the head and the heart because I've already talked a lot about the head and the heart when it comes to shame and remorse. Remember, I've been talking about shame and remorse, that initial thought, oh, I've done something wrong. We talked about the examples of Peter and Judas weeks ago. But I do have a couple of things I want to share concerning the head and the heart before I spend most of my time this morning talking about the hands. And so when it comes to the head, we have to have this first thought. I have sinned. I've messed things up. I've done wrong. See, this is the time when shame and guilt start to touch our lives. This is when it starts showing up. Now, this may seem obvious and logical about what, what I'm about to say, but if we never come to the thought that I've done something wrong, it is impossible for me to repent of it. 
I know you're, some of you may go and thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> Captain Hindsight, whatever. If we are not convinced that something is wrong in our head, we cannot repent. We cannot turn from it. It's impossible. It is impossible to repent. Because again, what is repentance? Remember what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from something. I'm going in this wrong direction, whether it's an attitude or an actual behavior. I've got a bad attitude. I've got a bad behavior. I'm not loving well. I'm not, and I repent, and now I'm loving better. The attitude, I'm keeping it in check, and I'm crucifying my flesh, and I'm going in a different direction. So the head has to be first. You have to be convinced in your thinking that I have sinned. That's why Paul says, you know, he thanks God for the law. Did you know Apostle Paul, he thanks God for giving us the law. He says it in Romans 7. He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Then down in verse 25, he says this. He goes, thanks. Everyone say thanks. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, just as a clarification, you know, what Paul is not saying in verse 25, he is not saying, well, my spirit's the Christian part, but my body, I do whatever I want. I'm serving the law of sin like it's a choice. He's saying, you've got to read the whole chapter 7 to understand that little last sentence. What I want to focus on is thanks be to God for the law. Paul was thankful for it. Paul is saying he thanks God for the law so that he was convinced. Say, I have to be convinced of what sin is in order to repent. Our head must be the first step when it comes to repentance. Are we clear? Yes. Secondly, true repentance has to go through the heart. In our heart, our emotions must be touched for real repentance to happen. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says godly sorrow. Everyone say godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So if our heart is not hurt, if, if our heart does not hurt and it's not broken for the wrong we have done, no real repentance has occurred. Repentance moves from the head and it has to hit the heart. We must acknowledge the wrong. We must acknowledge the wrong with our head and we must feel godly sorrow in our heart. And, you know, how many of us because I'm in this. <laughs> How many of us have done something wrong, but you don't feel bad about it? 
Yeah, come on. Everyone has. The rest are lying. I hope you feel bad about doing that right now. Because <laughs> you did it on purpose. <laughs> Every one of us have. We have all done something we knew we shouldn't do. And we didn't feel bad about it. You know, it happens, but we have to be very careful with that stuff. Because here's what happens. One of the clearest indications of what the Bible calls a hardened heart is that we no longer feel bad for committing sin. When we lose remorse, when we lose godly sorrow for sinning, we're on the path to a hardened heart. In fact, Paul tells us not to live with a hardened and calloused heart in Ephesians. He says, now I say this, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It is a truly dangerous place to be when we no longer feel remorse for sin. Again, if we, if we don't feel godly sorrow for sin, it is a clear indicator that we are becoming unconvinced that something is sin. Did you hear what I said? We are becoming unconvinced. Because most of the time, if you've had any life in God, you feel that little prick in your heart when you do it. I mentioned a couple weeks ago Game of Thrones. Remember the first time you watched and you saw porn? Remember that feeling you had? Saw the nudity and that pornographic love scene? Remember that? But you pushed through because the story is so good? That's dangerous. You are becoming unconvinced that what I saw was sin. For the sake of a great story, a great character development. We have to be careful. Because for true repentance to happen, we've got to be convinced what it is is sin. We have to involve our head, and it must move into our heart. But that's not the final step. For true repentance to work, it has to come through our hands. It has to work through our hands. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then jumping down to verse 5, it says that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Say that last line together. Produce fruit 
in keeping with repentance. So what is fruit? Fruit is something that is visible to everyone. Fruit is a major indicator of what kind of tree you're looking at. And fruit is not fruit when it's hiding still in the tree. See, fruit becomes fruit when it is hanging out on a branch for everyone to be able to see. So, when, we, when John the Baptist says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he's saying you need to live differently. He's saying, if you claim to be living the message, you know, you came out to hear me talk about repentance, if you claim to be living the message of repentance, you have to live differently. So, so in other words, when we repent, we should all be able to see the change in the direction of your life. The fruit of repentance is not thoughts. The fruit of repentance are not emotions. It's part of it. We got to be convinced. We got to feel it. The fruit of repentance is action. Say that after me. The fruit of repentance is action. When we truly repent, we live differently. And it is evident to everyone. Everyone. When we really repent, our friends at school should notice. When we repent, our co-workers should see a different you. Our family should, should notice. Our leaders, our pastors, our teachers, brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are really repenting, people should notice. You should not have to go into great explanation as to how you have changed to convince someone you have changed. So let me illustrate it this way. For, for me, one of my most favorite movies at Christmas time, my favorite, probably my favorite Christmas movie of all time, is A Christmas Carol. This version specifically, we love the Jim Carrey one. So the story of Christmas Carol is an ancient one, you know. Hundreds of years, we'll say, that ancient. Um, but it paints this beautiful picture of the principle and the process of repentance. Did you realize that? That this is a story about true repentance. Throughout this story, we watch this guy, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is this greedy and selfish man. And we watch him go on this journey of first being convinced in his head that he's living in the sin of greed and self-centeredness. 
And then one night, Scrooge is visited at home by his uh, deceased uh, business partner, Jacob Marley, as a ghost, and he wanders the earth now. Marley's wandering the earth with heavy chains and money boxes, all forged from a lifetime of greed and selfishness. And so Marley, he tells Scrooge that he has this single chance to avoid the chains that he has. He has a single chance to avoid the same fate and that he'll be visited by three spirits and he's got to listen or he'll be cursed to carry much heavier chains of his own. And so the story goes on and the first two spirits begin to work repentance into Scrooge's head. The first spirit, which was the ghost of Christmas past, he takes Scrooge to scenes of his boyhood, uh, you know, a time reminding him when he was innocent. You know how God likes to remind us of who we are? Remember? When we got so far off the track, God has to remind us. Hey, this is who you are. Remember this time in your life. and Remember your passion. So that's what the first ghost does. It shows him his... This child is innocence, and we see him. Uh, he takes him to the first uh, Christmas party hosted by his employer, Mr. Fezziwig. Uh, and, you know, Fezziwig treats Scrooge like a son, loves him like a son. And then the first spirit continues to convince Scrooge that he's, you know, the sin of his life, and he takes him to this scene of uh, him and his uh, fiance, Belle. And Scrooge has shown her ending their relationship because she's realizing that he will never love her as much as money. Further in the story, the second spirit comes, the ghost of Christmas present. And he takes Scrooge out to see this joyous market where people are buying all kinds of makings for Christmas dinner. Uh, Scrooge and the ghost, they also take a trip over to uh, Bob Cratchit's house. And they see this family sitting down to eat, and he gets introduced to Tiny Tim, who's got a very terrible disease. But, but Tiny Tim's this happy boy, and very full of life, but very, very ill. The spirit goes in and on, and he informs Scrooge that Tiny Tim is going to die unless the course of events change. And before disappearing, the Spirit shows Scrooge these two hideous, emaciated children called ignorance and want. And he tells Scrooge to beware of the former above all. And then finally, we see the third Spirit comes, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and he begins to move Scrooge into his heart. It's time to start feeling it, Scrooge. And into his heart with these emotions of remorse and anguish over how the path of his life is leading him down more sorrow, down lonely despair, to the death of tiny Tim, and then finally his own death. He's dealing with his heart. But, alas, all is not lost. Scrooge awakens from his night of encounter. 
And we find a man who is now repentant. He wakes up a different guy. And how do we know? How do we know that Scrooge is a truly repentant man? How do we know transformation really happened? How do we know that, that Scrooge repented of who he was? We see it in how he lives. Scrooge doesn't open the door of his bedroom window and start yelling, Hey, I had a dream about changing and I've changed. He didn't go to Bob Cratchit's house and, and have a really long talk about how, how bad he felt about being greedy. I'm so sorry I've been greedy, Bob, you know. And he didn't sit and go talk to Bob and, you know, try to convince Bob, hey, I've changed. I'm a changed guy. Nope. Didn't do any of that. What Scrooge did was he lived his life in a completely different way. He turned his back on greed, and he lived the life of a generous man. He didn't have to say anything to anyone. Scrooge lived out his repentance, and the whole city felt it. When we start to tap into our destiny, calling all kinds of people to repentance, just think about when youth and young adults start to take a hold of that message. And young people start responding in droves throughout our city. Our whole city will feel it. As we call husbands and wives to repentance, to repent to one another, and they respond, our whole city will feel it. When governmental leaders and educational leaders called to repent and they respond, our whole country will feel it. Repentance should reverberate in such a way. He said he did all he said he would do and more. And he became a good old, as good of a man as the whole city ever knew. He had a reputation, and he lived differently and got a new one. He received a new reputation for how he lived differently. And Jesus himself, he expects the same kind of repentance from us. Over and over again, we see Jesus speak directly to the, hard, the, to the hands part of repentance. Never do we find the Bible saying anything like, well, just think about what I said and you'll have eternal life. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Jesus never asks a crowd of people, is anyone feeling sorry about how you've been living after what I just said? Anyone? You? Anyone? Anyone feeling you good. All right, you're in. Anyone else feel bad? A little bad? Okay, you're in. It's not that. Jesus always expected his listeners to live differently. You remember the woman caught in adultery? Jesus says, and Jesus, he, he speaks to her accusers. You know, he tells them, he says, because this woman's caught and they bring her to Jesus and, and he looks at him and he says, fine, kill her. If you have no sin in your life, go ahead, kill her. 
But in John 8, 10, it says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, because they all walked away, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Jesus didn't say, now go and think about what you've done. He said, stop sinning. Or what about the crippled man who Jesus healed in John chapter 5? We read about Jesus healing this crippled man and the guy who got healed finally sees Jesus later on in the day at the temple and Jesus gives him this instruction in John 5. He says, later, Jesus found him at the temple and he said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen. We have over and over again, we see that when Jesus encounters people, he expects them to live out that encounter. Say this, when Jesus encounters me, he wants me to live out that encounter. See, the fruit of repentance, according to Jesus, is that we stop sinning and live differently. Now, there are all kinds of examples in the Bible about false repentance, just in case we're not convinced. You know, we've got Pharaoh. Anybody know who Pharaoh was, right? He was, had the Israelites enslaved, and, and the story, Moses goes to him and, you know, wants to get the Israelites free. And, and Pharaoh has this moment of false repentance because it's head only. So false repentance starts when it's only in your head. I just think something's wrong. I'm convinced it is, but that's as far as it goes. Because it says of Pharaoh, it says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and it says, This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He was convinced for a moment. But it didn't last, did it? Because he still went after them. He still tried to kill them. Another example of head-only false repentance is King Saul. You know, King Saul was going after David, trying to kill him. Before that, he, he sinned by offering a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to offer. And so he has to now talk to Samuel about it. And it says that Saul said to Samuel, Yeah, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. But here's why. Here's why, okay? Listen, this is the reason. So don't be super mad. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Gosh. Come on. Yeah, that was a funny moment. Gosh. Gosh. Get off my back, Samuel. You're so legalistic with all these stuff. You know what happens with Saul? Nothing changes. Yeah, he knew he was wrong, and it stayed right in his head. And nothing changes, and Saul, he loses everything. He loses the kingdom. He never repents. It never makes it to his heart, and then he doesn't live differently through his hands. 
Now, another kind of false repentance is where it's just your head and your heart only, and it just stops with feeling bad. See, a great example of this was, again, I've talked about them before. It was Judas, the story of Judas. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. That's your emotions. He was seized with remorse and returned the coins. He's trying to buy back his guilt, buy back his innocence. Throws it back at the chief priests and the elders. Says, I've sinned. I'm convinced in my head and I'm feeling it, guys. Here's how I'm going to fix it. I'm going to buy it back. For I have betrayed innocent blood. And they go, what's that to us? That's your responsibility. And so Jesus, or Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and he hanged himself. Another story is a guy named Esau. And we hear about him in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like who? Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, how many times have you seen a cop show where the criminal got caught, and now they're in the back of the squad car, and they are crying crocodile tears? I mean, they're back there just crying their eyes out. Clearly, he has it in his head. The criminal knows I did something wrong. Clearly, he's emotionally upset the fact that he's going to jail. But is that godly sorrow? No, it's not. That's worldly sorrow. He's emotional because his life is about to become incredibly inconvenient and uncomfortable. That's our guy you saw. Oh, you mean that stupid thing I did way back then doesn't let me have the blessing that I want in my life? And he was upset. See, the criminal says, I'm sorry. I mean, they beg the officer, please, please let me go. Please, please. I mean, how many times have you seen that? You know, oh, it was just, I didn't know it. Please let me go. Begging for forgiveness, but that's not repentance. Ultimately, the criminal has no respect for the law, no respect for the people he sinned against. This was Esau. He didn't care about God, and he didn't care about others. So verse 16, it says, you know, uh, that Esau was a profane person. Now, what does profane mean? Profane is a word that means godless and sacrilegious. Esau had it in his head, I did something wrong. He had it in his heart about his situation, but he found no place for repentance. Nothing changed in his actions. See, head and heart only doesn't cut it. It's not really repentance. Now, there's this one more weird version of false repentance, and I want to mention, because in the Bible, we have this group of people um, who were known for living right and doing 
lots of good stuff. They worked with their hands. They, they, they did a lot of good stuff. And by all outward appearances, they were living and they were doing the right thing. But Jesus had a problem with them. And he confronted them. I'm talking about the Pharisees. They were the religious people of Jesus' day. And you see, the problem with the Pharisees was they, they had the head part. They knew right and wrong. They had the head part. And they had the hands part because they lived and did everything the right way. But they lacked one true vital component to true repentance. They missed the heart. They didn't have the heart and they just had head and hands only repentance. And Jesus hammered them for it. In fact, he scolds them and he warns them sternly and he calls them dead on the inside. He refused to accept head and hands only type of living. Over and over, Jesus tells religious people that look, you know, to look at your heart. Over and over, right? We read the scriptures. We read what Jesus does with people. He says, look into your heart. You can't just go through the motions and do the right thing. It doesn't count it. Doesn't count. True repentance is in the head, it's in the heart, and it's in the hands. And you know, so many of our churches, and I've been there too, we're filled with people who do the right things and they look like they're doing right. They look like they're following Jesus, but their hearts are not in it. And Jesus warns us. In fact, he has this scathing rebuke concerning several issues of hypocrisy. Oops. You know, he says that about the Pharisees. And he goes on and tells them, you know, that you're whitewashed. You look clean on the outside, but the inside's filled. See, we're not living in true repentance if we skip over the heart. So true repentance, what does it look like? What are some great examples? David. David is an amazing example of what real repentance looks like. Because we all know the story of David and Bathsheba. David, um, you know, he commits adultery with this other guy's wife, this guy named Uriah. And David commits adultery with her. And some scholars even say that they think he raped her. And then he tries to bring her husband home, get him drunk, and go have sex with his wife because she's pregnant at this point now with his child. So he tries to trick her, this guy. He's out at war where David should be, by the way. And, and, and so this gal's husband's at war. David calls him home, tries to get him drunk, and send him home to go have sex with his wife. But the guy's too integral. He won't do it. And when that doesn't work, then David's like, well, I, I got I to gotta fix this problem somehow. So he sends Uriah with a note to the captain that says, put Uriah on the front line, and in the heat of the battle, pull the army back so he will be left alone. That's what they do. And Uriah dies this dishonorable death. Uriah was actually one of David's mighty men. And he died dishonored on the battlefield that day. 
all for the sake of David trying to cover up his sins. See, and here's the other thing. David wasn't just having a rough day. This wasn't just a bad day. David was practicing something. He was living, he was in a process of unrighteousness that continued for months and months. So David's under the old covenant, right? So by all rights, he should have, he should have been killed. God should have just smoked him. So why is it that a man who was under the old covenant, why was the kingdom and the favor of God not taken from him like it was from King Saul? Well, it was because when he was confronted by the prophet Samuel, Nathan, David took full responsibility for his sin. He, the Bible tells us, he spent seven days on the floor bawling his eyes out, weeping in deep repentance before the Lord. And how do we know that it was real repentance? How do we know he just wasn't feeling bad, that I did a bad thing? Because when he got up from the floor, he was a different man. We have no record in the Bible of him ever doing anything like this ever again. There was never another Bathsheba. In fact, in Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of righteousness. How do we know he repented? Why? Because we ask these questions. Did, G, uh, did David teach transgressors God's ways? Yes, he did. Did David, uh, did he sing of God's righteousness? Oh, heck yeah, he did. See, those are the fruits of repentance. It's clearly evident. It's clearly visible. He got it right. Head, heart, hands. Another guy that got it right was Peter. Peter had true repentance, even though he denied Jesus three times. How many more times is that than Judas? Two more. Good math skills. Jesus denied him not once, not twice, three times. That's more than Judas's one-time betrayal. So again, why did Peter and David, why were they treated so differently than the others who made the same sin or even a lesser sin? The true difference is that not in their sin, it was what happened after their sin. Matthew 26. It says, after a little while, those standing there Went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them, for you accident gives you away. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he did what? Wept bitterly. This is the picture of a broken man. His head and his heart are wrecked with sorrow for what he had just done. 
But it's not until later that we see the hands part of his repentance. It says in John 21, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. How do we know he really repented? Because he did these three things. He fed the lambs, he tended the sheep, and he fed the sheep. We've got two whole letters in our Bible, living proof that Peter repented and was a different man. He lived a different, he did everything that he said he would do. Another great example is Zacchaeus. It says in Luke 19, it says, When Jesus had reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions. Here and now, that meant right on the moment he started handing it out. Half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back. How much? Four times, not just what I owe you. Four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, notice what Zacchaeus didn't say. He didn't say, now listen, here's what I'm thinking about doing. No, he said, look. Look. Look, Lord. Look. I, here's what I'm doing. Watch how my repentance, Jesus. Look, Lord. Watch how my repentance is working itself out in my life. And Jesus said that salvation just came to this guy's house. That is powerful repentance. And how many believe Zacchaeus felt like he just hit the reset button? <laughs> Doink! Fresh start, clean slate, repentance. I feel good. You know, Psalm 51, verse 17 says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. It is the true heart of repentance that made the difference between David and Peter versus Judas and Saul. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful. Just say he's faithful. He is just. And he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in us. 
James 5.16 says, confess your sins to who? Oh, not just God. Confess your sins to each other and then do what? Pray for each other so that you may be healed. Guys, we have to be free men and women. We have to be free before a holy God. God's wanting us to come out from behind the fig leaf. The fig leaf of shame. So that we can get back to what we were created for. Walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. We've got to return to innocence. We've got to return to freedom. We've got to walk in the light of a fresh start. True repentance involves the head, the heart, and the hands. You know, in my own life, um, when I was growing up, I had a terrible relationship with my dad. I could say I hated him at some times. I, I mostly just couldn't stand him, but most of the, many of the times I hated him and did our relationship. And so I grew up, you know, as we all do, because that's what happens. Go off, go to college, start learning to be an adult, and met my beautiful wife, and get married, and start doing our life. And uh, of course, when you get married, you're it's the most delightful and terrible thing you've ever done in one <laughs> one moment. <laughs> Paul said it. I didn't. He said, "You get married, you got trouble, dude." Stay single if you can, like at all costs. But once you're in, you're in. There ain't no out. But, you know, we're married, and we start, you know, about 2001 as a church, we really start digging into healing, emotional healing, and things like cleansing stream and theophostics. And my wife is very, you know, excited about it, and she's diving into it. And, of course, as she's learning things, she's learning things. And, you know, every good wife loves to tell you what they're learning, especially when it has to do with you. (laughs) Here's what I'm learning about you. Oh, thank you. And one of the things she learns about me is, you've got daddy wounds. Like, what? That's stupid. (laughs) Mm, No, you've got them. Oh, well, that's still stupid. (laughs) I don't really care about my dad. Because at this point, I'm serving the Lord. I mean, I'm, I'm going after God as hard as I know how. And I'd done some forgiving and, you know. But my dad was just a non-issue in my life. I didn't, couldn't say I deeply loved him, but I sure didn't hate him anymore. Forgiven him for a lot of stuff, but just had nothing. He didn't serve any purpose. I didn't need him for nothing. So I didn't, I wasn't angsty. I wasn't, you know, my dad, why doesn't he love me? I mean, I just had none of that. You've got daddy issues. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. <laughs> Shut up. And so we go on in life, and lots of more opportunities show up to allow those daddy issues to manifest until, you know, I realize, oh, 
well, you know what? I've learned a thing or two about inner healing now that we've done it for quite a while. Maybe I do have some daddy issues. And so um, I started working through that in my own life, started really, you know, why don't I care about my dad? Why don't I want to talk to him? Why do I not want him to touch me? Why do I? And and it wasn't because he abused me in any way. I just, I don't like touching in general. (laughs) (laughs) But at least you would think your dad could touch it, you know, give you a hug or you'd be okay. But I wasn't. I didn't like it. I hated it. And um, so I I realized I've got some stuff to deal with. And so one of the things I had to do in that process and this is where, and I'm sharing this just because this is my own story of repentance. Of it's, I got convinced. I got a problem. And as I got that problem convinced, I started feeling the problem. Felt it with my wife. Felt it with myself. Felt it with God. And I realized I got to do something. And I'll, I'll never forget, um, as we were getting ready for our sabbatical, I was doing my PQ for uh, thorough format out in North Carolina, and I I could tell, I knew the daddy issues were going to come up, and I realized I I needed to deal with this issue. So I I went to my parents' house one day and was asking them, telling them about what I was doing and doing a little interviewing to get some background and stuff. But I knew what the Lord wanted me to do that day. And I had to sit on the couch and, with tears in my eyes, and look at my dad. And not just say, you were a sucky dad, and I forgive you. I looked him in the eyes, and I said, I've been a sucky son. I looked at my mom, and I said, I'm sorry. I looked at my dad, and I said, I'm sorry. I wasn't the son you wanted and needed. I'm sorry I was so rebellious. I'm sorry I hated you. Will you please forgive? course you know they're bawling and yes we forgive you and then I had to make another phone call I had to give a Lynn Furrow a call a guy who's helped us start this church and provide some spiritual and provided some spiritual fathering and he and I didn't always have a great relationship as well and I had to call him up and say hey Again, I didn't call him to say, you know, you really sucked as a dad and I forgive you. I said, sorry, I wasn't a very good spiritual kid. Sorry for my part and the breakdown of the relationship. Will you forgive me? Of course, he's, yes, of course. I have nothing against you but love. I said, will you pray for me? Will you pray a father's blessing? Love to. And that was head and heart. But how I'm working it out now is I play golf with my dad all the time. I enjoy being around him. I talk to him. I go to his house. I sit down on the couch. We have conversations. I encourage my children to be in his space as much as possible. I'm not neglecting him. I didn't just do business and now off, off you go. I'll be at the funeral. <laughs> I'm doing life with him again. That's, I think, what repentance looks like in my life. I've had to do stuff like that with my wife. I had to look her in the eye and say, I'm sorry. 
I'll be different. I'll do different. That's what repentance is going to look for everyone. Just feeling sorry is not enough. We've got to do something about it. It has to live differently. We have to live differently. God has given us a grace to overcome. That is the grace we're in right now. Not to cover up, not to hide, not to pretend that you don't have problems. The grace is here to overcome. And so I'm calling us as a family, as married people, as sons and daughters to moms and dads, and moms and dads to sons and daughters, to friends. We have to repent. We have to repent. So here's what I I would like us to do this week for our action. If you want to take a picture, you can do this. You know, last week, I, or two weeks ago, I should say, I asked everyone to make some list of things that you needed to repent of with your spouse, other relationships. So what I'm asking you to do this week is to talk with someone about what true repentance will look like when your head and heart and hands are all involved. Like, just don't go into your own little closet and, and decide, well, I think this is it. Talk it out with someone. Someone who can hold you accountable. Ask that person to hold you accountable for the fruit, not the thoughts, not just the emotion, to hold you accountable for the fruit of living differently. And then begin to identify areas where your head, heart, and hands are not a part of your repentance, where you think you're repenting. Oh, I think I'm doing it different. Ask. And ask the Lord for help, because if we don't get help from the Holy Spirit, this is going to be impossible. Ask the Lord to get help for the head, heart, and hands active in repentance. I want to pray for us. Father, we just... God, I say I'm sorry again. Sorry for the areas of my life that I allowed my heart hardened, that I've become unconvinced that what I've done is sin. Asking you, God, to forgive me, to forgive us. I'm asking for godly sorrow to sweep my heart, for the hearts of this family at New Covenant, God. I'm asking that once we become convinced that we have sinned, that we would feel it, feel it, feel it. And then I'm asking God for true repentance to manifest in our house, that we would live differently. That we would love differently. 
we would serve differently, that we would live our lives that shows the fruit of our true repentance, God. And Father, I thank you that grace is on us to do this right now, God. There is an extra special grace, God, on us to overcome, to repent, God, to turn and to turn to your ways, your ways of relationship, your ways of doing life, ministry, business, whatever it is, God. I pray right now, God, that you would increase, increase, increase. You would help us, oh God. Show us the areas where we need to, to surrender our lives yet again. And I just thank you, Father, for so many people who, who have said yes to you in this house, God, who, who lay their lives down and have gone with you, God, and that they would continue to go. God, I pray for a blessing of fire upon us, fire to burn in our hearts, that shame would be, would be crucified and destroyed from our lives, that pride would be crucified and destroyed from our lives, God. We would come from out behind the fig leaf of shame and we would come into the light of your cleansing, cleansing spirit, God. So I pray today, God, that you would, you would bless us, Lord, this week. That we would be not just hearers, but we would be doers of your word, God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your mighty work. I felt so much hope today in worship felt so much hope when we were singing raise a hallelujah I thank you God for the spirit of hope you are the God of hope that brings joy we know joy comes Lord when we when we get right with sin and we deal with it the joy of the, our salvation and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. It floods. The fire of God burns. We don't quench the Spirit any longer. We don't grieve Him anymore. Thank you for the fire and the hope that's coming, Lord Jesus. I receive it. Just say that. Say, I receive the hope. I receive the joy. I receive the fire of the Holy Spirit to set me ablaze. In Jesus' name. Amen.